All right, well, let's go and begin this morning. Thank you so much for being here this morning. I think we might have one or two uh, new faces. The one person's not here as of yet. I think she's coming in, Mary. I think she'll come in. You got to know, you know Mary. The other new person that you might not know, probably don't know, is, of course, if you don't mind, sir, what is your name? Ryan. Ryan. Everyone, welcome Ryan to our class. Ryan, thank you so much for being here. For this course is Ryan Fowler, and so Ryan, thank you so much for being here this morning. And I think everybody else has, uh, you know, come back for their second class. Oh, look at that. Here's a new person who just walked in. Put you right on the spot. What is your name, sir? That is John Stewart. John Stewart, everybody. Have a round of applause for John Stewart. There you go. Welcome to John. We're going we're gonna to switch up one thing on the schedule. Uh, so the schedule, as you can see in your folder, just one little switcheroo. You knew it was coming. You know, I was going to switch at least one thing before we're done. And that, of course, is uh, next Sunday. We won't do the sacraments. The next Sunday, we'll actually launch into the history of the church, part one. And then the history of the Anglican church, which is part two of the history part. And the sacraments we'll do on March the 27th. So let's do history first and then do the sacraments. Might be helpful. That'd be helpful. All right. We also talked about the retreat as well. And I have down a preliminary date of May the 7th, Saturday, May the 7th. Does that work for most people? Saturday, May the 7th. Does it not work for anybody? Saturday, May the 7th. All right. Hearing no objections. Going once, going twice. I so move that the retreat date will be Saturday, May 7th, right here at the church, and you have the schedule as of there. So we don't have to make a change there. That's great. Fantastic. Oh, I see another new person. What is your name, sir? Me? Yes. Oh, I am James Beard. That is James Beard, ladies and gentlemen. A round of applause for James Beard. Yes. The Cookie Monster. The Cookie Monster, yes. So James and also Mary. Mary's here as well. Mary Beard. Thank you so very much. All right. Uh, what else? What else do we have? Uh, okay. Schedule. Uh, da, da, da. Oh, yeah. I added everybody to uh, Realm, and everyone did a fantastic job. I only had like one or two people that w was not on Realm, so I was very pleasantly surprised. So first of all, thank you so very much for being on Realm. And I added your names to Realm. And so when you go on to Realm, you'll be able to see the handouts, just in case you miss a handout. You're right there in PDF form and also the recordings as well. It's also going to help those who might be taking the class if there are Sunday school teachers or also choir members. Again, welcome to all of you. Um, and so they'll, they'll take the class through those recordings. So again, um, you can look at our class page there on Realm as well. And of course, you've got uh, today's handouts, which is good. And now let's have a word of prayer. So let us stand this morning and let us pray our prayer there on the top of your handout. Almighty God, the fountain of all wisdom, enlightened by thy Holy Spirit, those who teach and those who learn, the rejoicing in the knowledge of thy truth, they may worship thee and serve thee 
from generation to generation, through Jesus Christ our Lord, who liveth and reigneth with thee in the same Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. And amen. Thank you so much. You can be seated. Again, just a little bit of review here. Uh, we go down. A little bit of review. Again, welcome to the class. Welcome back to the class. Uh, well, look at that. I think one moment here for just a second. A little, little uh, TV timeouts, if you will. I think I'm okay right now. I think I know the issue. We will see here in a moment if I need help. Uh, come on. There we go. Look how easy that was. And now, now we're back in business. Yes, there we go. Now I'm on the right PowerPoint slide. So welcome back. Welcome back. Good to see everybody once again on our second class together. Again, this class is answering three big questions. It's asking three big questions and hopefully answering them. We'll see if it actually answers them or not. But these are the three big questions. First is, well, what is the church? That's the first part of our class together. What is the church? And you can see right there on the class schedule, it follows these three questions. What is the church? What is the church's faith? And then also, how do I shape my faith? How do I shape my faith? So those are the three big questions of the class. Again, we uh, got sort of last uh, Sunday, and we asked the first question there, what is the church? And we gave at least one starting definition of the church. We said there's a community of Christians who are created to worship. So a community together of Christians who are gathered together in order to worship. And we said that worship is the most important thing that human beings were created for. That is what we are made to do. And then, of course, we talked about worship. First of all, it's liturgical, liturgical in nature. The definition of liturgy is the work of the people or the work for the people. So it's the work that the entire people do uh, together as the community as they worship and adore our God. We also said that worship is a little bit like theater. This is a good working definition here. It is not like theater in in the aspect of that theater obviously plays certain, you play certain characters. It's sort of fantasy land. It sort of taps into something that is true, but oftentimes the actual situation is, of course, fiction. It's not like theater in that respect, but it is like theater in many other respects. You do have players, you have props, you have different kinds of things. And so this is a working analogy of worship being like a theater, kind of like a uh, theatrical uh, performance. And so we ended last time talking about the props. We named several props, a cross, gospel book, banners, torches, thurble. The thurble is the holy smoke thing. The altar is, of course, a prop. We talked about players. second one, players there. The priest, the deacon, right? But also, as some of you nailed it, you nailed it, and I was so proud, you nailed it. The people. The people are also players, right? The people are players as well. And one uh, kind of, uh, in terms of terminology, and we'll do some terminology stuff as we go throughout the class too, the priest that presides at a service is called the celebrant. 
He used to be called the presider. He or she used to be called the presider. Now that person is called, since the 1979 prayer book, is now called the celebrant. More of a celebration, right? Because we're celebrating the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. The priest is, of course, the celebrant that provides, presides at the service. So now let's go on to the script. What is the script? What script do we follow? The prayer book, yes. Can we go more specific than that? Very good. So James brought up the, uh, the, the word right. Not R-I-G-H-T. No, we can talk about rights later on. It has rights. No, R-I-T-E, right. And the right is actually just the actual script given to us there in the prayer book. So as James said, uh, there's uh, two different rights. There's right one, and there's also right two. And James, of course, is referring to Holy Eucharist, right one. Holy Eucharist, right two. Which Holy Eucharist, right one, begins on page 323. And Holy Eucharist, right two, begins on page 355. But there's other rites, too. What if we do a baptismal service? The Holy Baptism service begins on page... 299. 299. So if we do a, a baptism, we're following the holy baptism uh, rite. And so the rite is actually the actual script given to us in the prayer book. And there's all different kinds of rites. This past Wednesday, we did an Ash Wednesday service. So we did the Ash Wednesday rite. Don't ask me what page that starts on, because I don't know. It's in the 200s. It's in the 200s. Uh, but we have also, my, my point is, is Ash Wednesday, Monday, Thursday, Good Friday, Easter Vigil, there's all different kind of rites that are there in the prayer book, and that is, of course, what gets prescribed there on the bulletin. And Mary does a fantastic job making sure she has all the bulletins right, and they actually prescribe to the prayer book. So those are the script. What about, what about uh, costumes? We've got costumes. What costumes do we wear? Your vestments. Vestments, yes. We have all different kinds of costumes that are called vestments. All different kinds of vestments. In fact, I'm wearing one of the vestments even right now. This is called a cassock, and it's part of the vestments that one wears. Uh, and actually, this is more of the uh, vestment you wear when you're actually doing work, right? You're moving things, you're doing work, you're getting things, or teaching a class. This is the vestment that you wear, and of course, it has white, the white alba go over it. But we'll talk more about the vestments at the retreat. At the retreat, of course, on Saturday, May the 7th, as we all know by now. So that's the costumes. What about the stage? What's the stage? Okay, altar, nave, fantastic. Yes. So the stage is actually three different parts. And one of them just nailed. One of them is, of course, the nave. The nave is the biggest part, by the way, of the stage. That is the stage of worship. The nave, of course, is that the biggest part, and it's the part, of course, now in our, in our sort of imagine now, our whole worship uh, space. Uh, you know, you have the narthex that starts there in the back, and then, uh, and then so here's the narthex, and so now, and here's the baptismal font in back of me. So I pass by the baptismal font, and I might cross myself as I remember my baptism, and I'm walking now through the narthex, kind of those, those walls that used to be apparently closed in. We opened them up, right? And that's, of course, where we put, at least in right two, we put the, 
the body of Christ, or the, the, I'm sorry, the elements that are going to be consecrated. And then you walk through, and then you start seeing pews, 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 the whole way down, right? And so that, of course, is the nave, where the pews are at, where the people sit, and they worship the Lord. And the people, of course, are part of the performance, and so therefore the nave is part of the stage. The nave, of course, comes from the old word navis, the Latin word navis, which, of course, is the word that means ship. It's where we get our word navy from, and anything that's naval. Why would the nave, well, why would we call it the nave? Why would we have this idea, the concept of a ship? Well, if you actually look up at our ceiling, some churches do it, some church architecture does it better than others. Uh, but if you actually look up, not this, well, actually, this would work too, but actually in our worship space, if you actually look up, it's an inverted arc. If you turn it around in your mind, that would, of course, be the bottom of the ship that moves along. So it's a ship, it's a water vessel, it's a, what kind of water vessel might there be in Holy Scripture that might conjure up some images for us? The River Jordan. The River Jordan? Okay, but even further back than that would be Noah's Ark. So what happened, of course, in Noah's Ark? You had, being on the outside is damnation, being on the inside was salvation, right? Getting into the ark. So the idea of the church being the ark, being the ark of salvation, has been a big theme all throughout church history, and that's why it influences church architecture. It's the inverted ark, because the church is the ark. Come inside the ark and receive salvation. Okay? So we have the, the, the nave, the navis, the nave, the ship, where the people are at. And then you come to, of course, the steps. And you have about two or three steps. Look up these steps. And now you're in a different part of the stage. You're in this long sort of part. It's a smaller part than the nave. There's pews on both sides as you're walking toward the altar. There's pews on both sides. And you keep on walking. Then all of a sudden you get to this railing, this altar railing. You get the altar railing. Now, don't step up into the altar. Now, don't step up in the, as of yet. Don't go past the altar railing. Stay on the altar railing, but then turn around and look back. And you see this section right here. Pews on both sides, and you had steps to get up. That is, of course, called the chancel. The chancel. And uh, the chancel, of course, is from an old uh, word that means lattice. Because in the old days, in the medieval church, and I, do not, I did not approve this at all, uh, but in the medieval church, what they would do oftentimes is they would actually build uh, actually a screening that would come down. It would be a screening made of lattice. And it would divide the people from what's happening there in the chancel and also up there too, which we'll talk about here in a second. So anything the priest is doing, the people would have to look through this screen. They couldn't really see exactly what was all going on. It was much, very, very mysterious. And it separated the clergy from the people. Now, thank God the church has reformed out of that idea. The screens are now gone. But that's why that section is called the chancel. It's an old word that means lattice. But then you turn and you actually go up that once. Uh, I think it's go up a step, I want to say. Maybe not. I think it's a step. Yes. Through the altar railing. And now you're into the smallest place. That, of course, is where the altar is at. So don't bang into the altar. You have to walk around the altar, right? Because the altar is like right there here in our architecture. 
But that, of course, is called the, the sanctuary. That's called the sanctuary. Now, I know some of you guys are old Baptists. You're coming from the evangelical church. Me too. That's my history. And I remember my grandma and my parents used to say, uh, little Jimmy, by the way, don't call me Jimmy. Little Jimmy, <laughs> stop running through the sanctuary. We call it a sanctuary, right? Well, where am I running? I'm running up and down the pews and all that other stuff, right? And I'm running in the sanctuary. Don't run the sanctuary anymore, right? Because the whole thing, the whole worship space in the Baptist church is called the sanctuary, right? If you want to go to the worship space, go to the sanctuary. But that's not the case in the Episcopal Angl Anglican Church. It's not the case in liturgical churches altogether, even, you know, Roman Catholic or Orthodox churches. And again, if you mess this up, no one's going to call you out. But the whole place is not the sanctuary. It is the nave. It is the chancel. But the smallest place is the sanctuary. It comes from the old Latin term sanctuarium. And it's where you would place the small containers that you would place holy things in. So if you think about it, this is the smallest space. This is sort of like a small container, if you will. And it's the place that has the holiest of things. What is the most holy thing that is there in the sanctuary? Yes. You literally have, and I do mean literally, you literally have the body and blood of the Lord Jesus Christ there being reserved in that little, even a little smaller container, a little smaller sanctuarium, if you will, that we call the tabernacle or the ombre. It's there that we can pull out and use in sacrament. Of course, a little less holy than that is, of course, our altar that has been consecrated, which actually is the place where we consecrate the elements each and every Sunday. So the nave, the chancel, and the smallest, the sanctuary. So when we think about it, you know, our, our worship is a two-act play. It's a two-act play well, the first act, we have the liturgy of the word. And the second act, we have the liturgy of the table. And when you think about it, we at St. John's are like a lot of more traditional liturgical churches. Where is the celebrant? Celebrant. Where is the celebrant in the first part of the service? Where is the celebrant in the liturgy of the word? He is in the chancel. Right? He's in the chancel. He's in the chancel. And presides from there. And then, of course, after your announcements and all that other stuff, we have the liturgy of the table. Where does the celebrant go from there? He enters, or she enters, into the sanctuary. So it's showing us that we're going from a larger section to a smaller section, which is showing us by the very way we do our service that liturgy is progressive, that we move to something higher in the second act. We move to something more progressively holy in the second act. So in the liturgy of the word, it's chancel-led, but it also includes the nave. We're pulling from the nave, the people's responses. The liturgy of the, of the table, it's sanctuary altar-led, but it also still includes the nave. Always includes the nave. We never forget about the people. So with that, we're going to move now to our next handout. So what we're going to do for the rest of our time this morning is kind of just walk through the service. I know, and I will admit to you, uh, sort of, you know, it's not the kindest thing to do. That we're walking through the service during this period of time because, as you'll see in our service today, as you've already seen for the right one, folks, 
with a great litany. We have changed around a lot of things in our service, and that change around will continue for the next three or four Sundays, okay? So we're switching things around a lot. But if you remember what we did last Sunday, and what we have done the last number of Sundays, it is the more normal way we do worship here at St. John's. And so that's what we're going to walk through today. So you have a prayer book there, a few prayer books we can share, of course, at your table. If you want to kind of see what we're walking through, we're going to do the right two side. We had to pick one or the other. I'm sorry. We're going to pick the right two side. So that's page 355. Play page 355. Yes. Oh, yes. We're actually going to get there. I promise. We're getting there. So when we look at the liturgy of the Word, which is, again, the first part of our service, uh, we would say, at least my interpretation, that the Word establishes the table, but the table is the culmination. So just like any play or theater, again, that is our running uh, metaphor here, just like any other play or theater, if you don't see the second act, you don't know what the first act was pointing toward, what it really meant. And likewise, if you come late in the middle of the performance and you didn't see the first act, then the second act doesn't have much meaning because you don't know how you got there. How did we get here with all these characters? So again, my interpretation is that the word and the table, they go together. They're actually married together. And one thing, about, by the way, about theology or worship, if you understand the idea of marriage, it really is going to help you an awful lot. It's always two things, two very diverse things. Oh, diverse things. Marriage, diverse things. <laughs> Lord, help me. Coming together. Coming together and be married together. Same thing. Word and table are different, but they're married together into one service. Uh, Timothy Radcliffe says this. He's a theologian who says that we begin to glimpse who we are and where we are headed when we have the liturgy of the Word. So let's actually walk through it. The liturgy of the Word, the Word of God. It begins, of course, with the procession. The procession, of course, is the thing that ushers in, ushers in the Word. So before we even have that, before worship, we vest together, we put the vestments on. We, in some ways, are being clothed with salvation. That is the idea, the symbol of the vestments, being clothed with salvation. We pray. We dedicate the service to God. And then what we do is we line up and we process in. We take the symbol of salvation, the cross, as well as the gospel book, the Word of God, and we show it on its journey. So one thing about liturgy is it's always about moving. It's always bodily. We're using not only our souls, we're using our bodies, and we're moving, and we're walking, we're walking, we're processing, we're holding, we're doing bodily things. And we process, of course, through the nave, which again, in some ways, I would argue, sanctifies the nave. We go up into the chancel, it sanctifies the chancel. We go up into the sanctuary. At least, a lot of churches go to the sanctuary, sometimes with the way things are placed. And if you have a small sanctuary, you can't do it. So here at St. John's, we have a small sanctuary, so the cross doesn't go the whole way up, up into the sanctuary, but it goes close enough, right? It acknowledges the altar in the sanctuary. And then, of course, it's time for worship. 
It's time for worship. And so when you think about worship, of course, when the first act, because there's two acts. So it's act one, scene one. What do we do? Well, the first thing we do is we affirm the word. Affirming the word. And that is basically four different things. It is the opening, the opening acclamation. It is the call it for purity. It's the gloria and the call it of the day. The opening acclamation, right there on page 355. Blessed be God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and blessed be His kingdom now and forever. Amen. So we're not asking a question. We're not opening a debate. We are simply declaring something boldly about our God. We say that our God is holy. We're saying that our God is Father, Son, Holy Spirit. So we, we actually name Him. We say that His kingdom is holy. And that His kingdom stands now. But it also stands forever. So we're making a number of declarations in that opening acclamation. And again, both the celebrant and the people are both involved. Both declare it. Because again, it's the work of the people. And you can see there are other options available for Easter and also for more penitential times like Lent. Uh, and so beginning next Sunday, for example, we will go to bless the Lord who forgives all our sins. And the people will respond. His mercy endures forever. Yes. Then we move on to the colic for purity. Now that God's been addressed, the people are now addressed. For God, it was these bold statements. But for the people, it's a prayer. Humility, a prayer. So the celebrant then offers this prayer on behalf of the people. And the priest intercedes for the people, which is what a priest always does. He's always standing between God and the human beings. So he intercedes for the people and he prays this collect, this collect for, uh, for purity. A wonderful and beautiful prayer. And that's exactly what collects are. Collects are gathering prayers. The idea is to collect. So we say the word collect and we pronounce it that way, but it actually is doing exactly what the, how it's spelled. It is collecting, to collect the celebrant, in, a, in, in effect, bundles all the people's prayers, all the people's desires for purity. All those prayers that are mentioned before, that are prayed before the service or after the service or throughout the week, in a sense, gathers them all together. And in one collect, offers it up to God. As the priest is offering this on behalf of the people, this collect for purity. From there, then we go to the, uh, we go to the Gloria. And I wrote recently in the, uh, in the Evangel an article about the Gloria a few months ago, and I called it, of course, the Angelic Hymn. And this is what I wrote in the Evangel, just in case you didn't read it, just in case. We call the Gloria as shorthand, but its former title is Gloria in Excelsis. And if that sounds familiar, it should uh, set off the Christmas bells there in your mind, because that's right. It's glory to God in the highest. It's the angels singing in Luke chapter 2 to announce the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, um, and that's what we're doing when we sing the Gloria. We are just like the angels announcing that our Lord is here, that our Lord is here in this place, that his presence on this earth makes a difference, for he was the one who took away the sins of the world, and that his presence makes a difference now today as he sits at the right hand of God the Father. So as the Gloria prays, and that's part of what this hymn is, is doing, it's praying, have mercy upon us. 
In write one, we do this in a said form. In write two, we will do this uh, in a choral form, in a musical form. But that is exactly what we're doing in the Gloria. We also tell, so we're, we're telling God what we think of him. Then you can also see there on page 356, there's also some other options for us. There's what's called a cure. The word cure means Lord. So Lord, have mercy upon us. And you also can see the holy God, holy and mighty, holy and mortal one, have mercy upon us. And we'll use that actually for the Stations of the Cross this Wednesday. So you hear that again over and over again, the Stations of the Cross liturgy. And we also will use that probably beginning next Sunday too uh, for the season of Lent. So more penitential times uh, requires us moving away from the Gloria and more toward the Cure and also Holy uh, holy God. So for the Lenten season, we go away from the Gloria. We do that on purpose, just like going away from bells and the this, this saying of Alleluia, because we bring it back at Easter, and that is, again, the Easter vigil. That's ash, after, the, um, after the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is the first thing we actually sing is the Gloria, because we bring it back in the church. Then, of course, then we do the Collect of the Day. So only after declaring something about our God and praying for purity and talking to God directly, do we greet one another. So the, the celebrant greets the people. The Lord be with you. And also with you. And then the celebrant says, let us pray. And then the call of the day is a different prayer each week depending upon the church calendar. And we'll talk about the church calendar later on in a class. And depending upon what season we're in. So again, those collects are there for you in the prayer book, and they're in the uh, 200s, I want to say. Yes, they are. So, of course, we have the traditional ones and also the contemporary ones, and you can see the traditional ones there, early parts of uh, 200, page 200. And then the contemporary collects are in about the 230s, 240s area. Now we're prepared to hear God's word. After all that, now we can actually hear God's word. So this, of course, is scene two, hearing the word of God. Lessons, gospel, sermon, and creed. Of course, we read our lessons according to the lectionary. And there are two lectionaries in the prayer book. And they're way back in the back of the prayer book in the 800 uh, page number areas. So way, way back. The first one is a three-year lectionary. It's called the Revised Common Lectionary. And that's the one that has the years A, B, and C. So we have formulas for uh, lessons for A, B, and C. And what year are we in right now? C. We're in year C. So all our lessons come, of course, from uh, year C in the lectionary. And that lectionary begins on page 888. There's also a second lectionary called the Daily uh, Lectionary. It's also probably called the Daily Office. And that's more for individual use or devotional use throughout the week. So that's your lectionary for Monday through Saturday. But your Sunday lectionary is going to be, actually, let me revise that. That actually is all seven days of the week. But the Sunday lectionary that we're going to use in church is that revised common lectionary, which begins on page 888. And that's, of course, where we get all our lessons from. How many lessons do we read? Well, we read four passages of Scripture. Notice how I said that. Four passages of Scripture. But technically, there are two lessons. Now, again, you don't have to read all four if you don't want to. 
we like to add more to our services on Sunday. So here at St. John's, we always read all four passages. But you can devise a service where you can just read one or two. But there actually is actually, at those four passages, there's really just two lessons. There's, of course, the first lesson, which will typically come from the Old Testament. In Eastertide, the season of Easter, it'll come from the book of Acts, will be in that spot. But typically, throughout the entire year, it's usually the Old Testament. That's lesson one. Then the next thing that gets read is technically the response. It's a response to that first lesson. And that response overwhelmingly is going to be coming from the Psalter, be a psalm. But every once in a while, there's other catanicals in the prayer book that will get read in that slot. Like, for example, the third or fourth Sunday of Advent is always going to be in the Magnificat, the great song of Mary, right? Third or fourth Sunday of Advent, instead of the Psalter. So you have the first lesson, the Old Testament, then, of course, you have the response, and then you have the second lesson. The second lesson overwhelmingly comes from the epistles, those letters that are written in the New Testament. And um, in fact, they're so overwhelming that we actually call this oftentimes popularly the epistle. Who's going to read the epistle? There's a question that gets asked an awful lot in churches. Who's reading the epistle? Who's got this? But also in that slot, it's not always the epistles, because in that slot will also be from time to time the book of Acts as well. And then finally, the fourth passage that gets read, of course, is the gospel. And we call that the gospel. It can technically be a lesson, but we don't really call it a lesson. It is the gospel. And of course, in every service, it's mandated that if you're going to have Holy Communion, you have to read the gospel, or a gospel. You can't have Eucharist without hearing the gospel. It doesn't make much sense. The gospel, of course, has its own procession, oftentimes. And you'll see this, of course, in, in Rite 2, you see this an awful lot. We take the, the word from off the altar, altar and off of the, from the sanctuary, we process it through the chancel and down into the nave, in the midst of the people. Why do we do that? We do that because we're trying to symbolize this is Jesus, who came down from heaven. So what's literally happening? The person carrying the gospel book is literally taking it from the altar, going down a step, going through the chancel, going down more steps, and out in the midst of the people. Because this Jesus is the Jesus who came in the midst of the people. It wasn't always like that. In the old church, what they would do is they would go to the altar, and they would take the gospel book that would always be on the north side. So the altar looks, faces east. I'm not facing east right now, but let's just say I am. Faces east. So your north side is going to be what side? that side. The gospel book is always going to be over here on the north side. So what they would do is they would read the gospel on the north side of the altar, but they would stay in the sanctuary. They'd stay distant from the people. Well, again, we formed out of that a little bit, right? Now we take the gospel book, we go down in the midst of the people. Again, trying to show that Jesus who condescended, who descended to this earth to be in the midst of the people. After that, of course, we hear the sermon. So having, the, the, having heard the word with our ears, how does it get into our heart and mind? The sermon is designed for the, the word to actually impact us. What does this mean for the 21st century? What does this mean for us as Christians? And so the sermon, as best as it can be done, is designed to do that. Then we go to the creed. 
And the old thing, of course, in, and I, I take great comfort in this, by the way, and maybe you guys take great comfort in it too, but don't take too much comfort in it, I hope. But if you're in a service, liturgical service, and you hear a bad sermon, just remember you get another one coming, okay? You get the Nicene Creed. And the Nicene Creed really is preaching that second sermon, reminding us of exactly what is our faith. How should the Word of God that we just heard, read for us, and then preached, how should it be interpreted? How should we hear it? What does the tradition of the church have to say about our faith? So the creed gives us a summary of what the church has always believed. It's another way of, of gathering us together and having unity. We, uh, the people here at St. John's, but the people in the Episcopal Church, or whatever church you want to you say, we, there's a lot, we have a lot of viewpoints. A lot of viewpoints. We are divided politically, we're divided culturally, and all sorts of different views. But the one thing that gathers us together is, of course, that Nicene Creed, is the creedal faith. Not to say that, again, all of us um, are in the same spot in our journeys of faith. Not all of us are in the same spot in our journeys of believing that creed. But as one priest, when I was going through confirmation, said, that I thought was tremendously helpful and affirming, that remember, always remember the creed is a prayer. At the end of the day, the creed is a prayer. And so even if you have some struggles believing what's there the creed, Praying it is part of it as well. Pray that I might have the faith, expand the faith, in order to believe what the creed is saying. But that, of course, is what combines us together, what unites us together, is, of course, the creed of our faith. We move on to scene number three, praying the word. Praying the word, of course, is the prayers of the people, confession, absolution, and peace, as you can see there. The prayers of the people is a more formal time of prayer, a set prayer offered each week. In Rite 1, that is, is given to us there in the liturgy on page 328. It's right there in the liturgy. But in Rite 2, it gives us a bit more of options. And of course, those forms begin, I don't know, page 360, I believe, 370, somewhere in that neighborhood. But the one we use here at St. John's an awful lot is Form 6, the prayers of the people. That's on page 392. It's always a responsive prayer that has a leader, and it also involves all the people. So again, you can see all the different forms there in right two. Again, it's actually page 383 to 395. If I just read my note, it's right there. Yeah. But there's a lot of different forms. And actually, you can write your own prayers of the people, because they're somewhere... Uh, I believe, yes, on page 359, if you look, it actually gives you the structure for what the prayers of the people should look like. So you can write your own prayers of the people as long as you follow that structure and you're doing the kinds of things the prayer book calls for, you can write your own prayer, uh, prayers of the people. So my old church, I had to write prayers of the people for my, for my youth, for my small little kids that were doing children's chapel, and so that was a fun time to kind of think through that form and to write prayers of the people for little kids. How do you do that? Um, it was a really great thought experiment for me. But you can write your own prayers to the people uh, for yourself as well. Then, of course, we go to confession. This is your mother. This is your mother telling you to wash up before you eat. Always wash up before you eat. And so this is the washing of your soul. 
before you come to the Lord's table. It's the form of prayer before God that we've all sinned in thought, word, and deed. It's comprehensive. It gets our arms wrapped around our lives, thought, word, and deed. There's not much escape room from that. (laughs) The things that we have done, the things that we have left undone. And so again, it's designed to be comprehensive. Our command, of course, from our God is to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. That is comprehensive love. And we are admitting that we have failed Him comprehensively by what we have done and by what we have left undone. So we confess it and we ask God for forgiveness. Then comes the absolution. Absolution is a word that means release. Release the guilt of our sins. So that's when the celebrant as the priest comes forward. uh, And again, the priest offers things to God. And what he or she is doing here is to offer to God in a formal liturgical way our sense of sorrow for our sins so they might be forgiven. So the priest always points to Jesus Christ. It is not the priest who forgives sins. It is the priest who liturgically points the Lord Jesus Christ as the, uh, as the one at the right hand of the Father that forgives us our sins. But what it does liturgically, though, is it gives us a sign, it gives us a symbol to us that says, I've, I have confessed, I have received absolution, and I am now released from those sins, released from that guilt, and now it's about what I do this week coming up. It's a lot of what liturgy does. Liturgy sets the marker for us. Yes, you can go into your own room, you can get down on your knees, and you can confess your sins to the Lord Jesus Christ. And I hope that you do that. That is very, very important that you do that in your own devotional life. But for some folks, and I would even argue maybe for all folks, certainly for me, I will put myself right here. What I need is I need more than that. What I need is I need to actually go into a service or go and actually see a sign, a symbol, a marking that I've been released. And that's what liturgy does. It's the sign, the symbol, it's the marking. After that, we have the passing of the peace. The passing of the peace has two different meanings. Two meanings. The first uh, part, the first meaning of the passing of the peace is when we're exchanging greetings, of course, and loving each other, what we're doing is we are actually being a symbol of grace. We're reminding the other person, you have been released, you have been forgiven, let me pass peace to you, and to remind you as I'm passing the peace to you, you've been forgiven. Okay? So it's a, a passing the peace is an extension of grace. Passing the peace also has a second meaning. As Jesus says, don't go to the altar and do all the things of the altar in great consternation and make a sign of your own piety, but yet you hate your brother or sister that's right there sitting in the pew. You've got a problem with your brother or sister sitting right there in the pew. So, the passing of the peace is also that time in the service where you can actually go to somebody and say, hey, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. If what I did or something, we had a little falling out. Let's talk after the service. At least you've done something to, again, wash yourself before you go to the Lord's altar. 
So the passing of the peace is that time to get right, perhaps with your brother or sister in Jesus Christ. Uh, or maybe it's somebody outside the church, and you just say a little silent prayer and say, you know something, I'm going to make that right when I get out. But make it right before you go to the altar. So that's where the passing of the peace has different meanings. With one minute left, let's lastly look now. Oh, I'm going to get this right. I am. The second part of our two-act play, of course, is the table. And it really does begin, again, as, uh, as Ratcliffe will say, this part is the triumph of love over hatred and death, the first taste of communion with each other in God. And the transition part here is, of course, uh, as we skip announcements, uh, is, of course, the offertory. The offertory is not just offering our money to God. That is only a part of what happens during the offertory. It is offering all of ourselves to God. So it's that transition between word and table. It is hearing the word of God, and now I'm going to do something about it. I'm going to, in a symbolic way, offer myself to God. So that offering plate that kind of goes by is, in some ways, again, another symbol as we pass it. I am placing myself on that altar. I am offering myself once again in this coming week, which will be hectic and it will be filled with anxiety and all sorts of challenges will happen to me this week. But as I begin this week, I'm offering myself first to Almighty God. That's the offertory. That's the power, I think, of the offertory. And again, treasure is also part of that too, as all stewardship is. Time, talent, and treasure. What are we offering to our God? As a, as a thanks for all that he has done. Romans 12, 1. Present your bodies as a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. Now listen to what right one does with that. Right one Eucharistic prayer. And here we often present to thee, and here we often present unto thee, O Lord, ourselves, our souls, and bodies, to be a reasonable, holy, and living sacrifice unto thee. All they did was they just stole. Just stole from the Apostle Paul. That's all they did. It's just, a cut, it's just a copy and paste job. That's all this is. That shows you in the Eucharistic prayers how Scripture is just being placed right into those prayers. And here we often present to the O Lord ourselves, then it breaks it down. What is a person? A person's made up of both body and soul. Soul and body. Married together in a person. Ourselves, our souls, and our bodies. Souls are just as important as bodies, and bodies are just as important as souls. Our souls and bodies to be a reasonable, holy, and living sacrifice unto thee. When it comes to Holy Communion, you said we have a long way to go. We don't, though, because during the retreat on Saturday, May the 7th, that's when we're going to tackle the rest of the service, which, of course, is Holy Communion, when we do an instructed Eucharist together. And I'm looking forward to that on Saturday, May the 7th. One, two more things, though. If I have time, there's the rest of Radcliffe there. Yes, offering ourselves the table. So that's Act 2, Scene 2, communion with Christ and others. The table. And then, of course, the recession. We take the beauty out of the church, go in peace, the love, and serve the Lord. Absolutely. The two P's of worship, participation and prayer. Everything is participatory, and everything is a prayer. Everything done is everything prayed. When one is uh, reading a lesson in church, they're really praying that lesson. 
when one is reading the, uh, the psalm, when one is doing the offering, they are praying uh, all parts of the service. So liturgy is not just the work of the people. The liturgy is also a prayer. It's one continual prayer throughout. And now, let's go and pray. God bless you all. Thank you.